This is Brian Clevenger, creator of Atomic Robo, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. Yes, and I am. today on the show, well, it's Brian Clevenger, isn't it? It is. It is. He came on and talked with uh, Big Hoss, the Get, Jeff, about his comic series, the Eisner-nominated comic Rotomic Robo. They talked a little bit about his webcomic, 8-Bit Theater. He's been <laughs> you doing just for said a while. Rotomic. <laughs> Did I say Rotomic? <laughs> you said Rotomic Robo. <laughs> uh, atomic. It's Atomic. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, Eisner-nominated Atomic Robo. Yes, I'm not smart with words. Sorry. You speak this good. Is, this is why I'm not, a, not an Eisner-nominated writer. Because <laughs> I say Rotomic. But. Uh, that's hilarious. No, this guy seems really cool. I can't wait to listen. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I've already listened because I edited it. But, you know, let's do it. Welcome, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have Brian Clevenger. How's the hey. comic book business treating you, Brian? As well as I guess it can. <laughs> or is it hard adjusting to lack of conventions and maybe also uh, shipping delays and whatnot? Uh, yeah, that hasn't been great. We haven't been hit too hard by that stuff. I mean, we haven't done conventions since early March. But luckily, you know, our readers have kind of stepped up and, you know, we've done little sales in places of in place of doing conventions and you know, our fans are excited to, to try to support us in the meantime. So those sales have helped out kind of to kind of balance out some of the losses from, you know, not doing any conventions. Mostly it's just the social thing. Like it's such a solitary profession. You know, everybody's working remotely. Uh, even Scott and I, we live in the same city, but I work even before the pandemic. You know, I worked at home. He worked in the office. So uh, these conventions were just a really great opportunity to just, you know, see our comrades, see our friends. To your colleagues, and that's what I miss more than anything. And that's Scott, Scott Wegener, right? Am I pronouncing that right? Wegener? Yeah, yeah, I actually got to meet him. I think it was in Toronto Convo Convention. This is going back maybe eight or nine years. He's a fantastic oh, yeah. guy. Yeah. I like him all right. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I, I do miss conventions quite a bit. We were, me and my wife were supposed to go to Trificon this year in, um, in August. It would have been 
God, it would have been next week. Yeah. And it, it, it's quite a blow not to, to be missing that this year. I've, it's been a staple of every year going to at least one convention. Yeah. yeah. We knew we were in trouble when Emerald City had to cancel because that's our biggest show of the year. And when, once that canceled, I was like, well, I bet we're not going to do a single show this year, just the way things are shaking down, even though that was back in March and people were still hopeful that you know things would get back to normal. But then shortly after that, the Javits Convention Center, that's the big convention center in New York City, they were started converting it into a hospital. And I was like, oh, they're damn. not going to have New York Comic Con. Oh, in the hospital? Yeah. <laughs> Probably that's not, not happening this year. It, it, it'd be a very depressing comic book. Hey, yeah. table of an artist here, person in bed, <laughs> in medical well, bed, right, ventilator right there. Stop <laughs> coughing. I'm trying to make a sale. You know what? As an artist, I probably would be that guy who says, knock it off. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to talk here. Try to die with some dignity. <laughs> yeah, that would be very depressing. Around here, because I'm, I'm, I live in Rhode Island, our big convention in Rhode Island is Rhode Island Comic Con, obviously, because it's Rhode yeah. Island. And it, was, it, it usually happens in November. And I was totally convinced that would be the one convention that would be that would still be around this year. I was ready to go. And they got canceled because yeah. obviously we can't control ourselves <laughs> enough to have a, a proper lockdown. Yep. Hopefully it, next year. Yeah, but it seems like you do very well with on Patreon. You do something very cool, I think, on Patreon. Not only do you have your, I think it's pins that you do, but you also show kind of like, a, you kind of do a background on the comic book itself and artwork and everything like that. And I think it's a very cool way of doing a Patreon. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Mostly, I just tried to stick to a, like a weekly, sort of, essentially a blog post where I just talk about my process, you know, what we've been working on lately, what we're looking forward to that I can talk about. Right now, we've been in this sort of stage where I'm working on, I swear, five things right now, but <laughs> all of them are, are in different stages of, well, you can't tell anybody about it yet. So that's been kind of stifling. So, um, so, so there's one that you're working on that I, I may not know about that you can kind of give me a hint about? There's a project we're going to release in a few weeks, a comic, and uh, that's really all I can say at this point. Okay. It'll well, be, it's, it's a whole new thing, aside from Robo, and I just hope folks will enjoy it. Now, the thing that you can't talk about, we're going to talk about, can we talk about it just for a minute or two, if you don't mind? You can try to. Okay, I appreciate that. Is it for IDW? Oh, no, it, it's another creator-owned thing that we're just doing on our own. We approached some publishers, but ultimately we decided to just do it on our own terms. Is this going to be in the same genre and style as Atomic Robo, or is it something quite different? Oh, it's more of a fantasy. It's still funny and, and a bit of a goofy adventure, but yeah. It's Scott on it with? No, Scott's way too busy just cranking out Robo. Actually, he and I did work on a totally new creator-owned title aside from Robo. That's what he spent most of 2019 doing. That does have a publisher, but the pandemic has kind of put all that all those plans on hold temporarily. All of his work on that is done so we're like 95% of the way ready to release it. But with the pandemic and all, you know, everybody is kind of playing it safe and just, you know, holding off on, on that for now. But hopefully we'll get to release that to everyone, if not later this year than 2021. Well, I, I hope so. Like I said, I'm actually a really big fan of Atomic Robo. I've been buying it for a lot of years. I mean, I guess you've been doing Atomic Robo for 13 years. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and all the time it's been with Scott. And I think that's probably one of the longest artists um, and writer partnerships I can think of right now in the industry. And Gosh. I was wondering, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I can't think of any partnership like that that's been that long and successful. Well, it helps that I'm working at home and he's working at the office so we don't get on each other's nerves. <laughs> <laughs> is it like family where you guys kind of bicker a little bit or is it you guys really do have a really solid non 
You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like a marriage couple. There's some bickering going yeah, on. I mean, yeah, there's always going to be stuff that we disagree on. But I think at the end of the day, each one of us respects what the other one, you know, because we both know we just want to make the best comic book that we can. We want to make the most fun comic book that we can. And really, we're just kind of disagreeing about the exact details of how that can happen. And it's not it's not even necessarily that one of us is wrong. A lot of the time, we're we're both right, just in different ways. So, you know, we we each, you know, here's my position. Uh, yeah, I, see, I hear what you're saying, but here's my position. Okay, well, ultimately, what we I think we tend to just decide on. It's really ultimately what benefits the book. If it's my idea and if it's super complicated to draw, you know, I will obviously defer to Scott if he's like, well, I could do the same effect, or you know, we can have the same emotional impact, or whatever it is. But here's the much easier way to accomplish it, and it doesn't, you know, break my neck and, and make me <laughs> make me insane. You yeah, know, like yeah. that, I'm not I'm not going to argue with him. I'm like, yes, absolutely, do it the do it the non stupid way, you know. <laughs> yep. But uh, but you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, we just we do respect one another. You know, he can't write a comic book, I can't draw a comic book, so we I think we each have a, an appreciation of what the other brings to the book, even when we're in the middle of an argument. And again, just the knowledge that we, we each have each other's back and that we're both of us ultimately want the same thing. I think that just helps us to get over whatever the temporary argument is. I can't even I, I know for a fact, we, you know, we've had discussions about you know, how to approach uh, different topics or different pages or whatever. I, and I know we've had arguments about it, but they're so minor and it's, it's difficult to even put them to even say it's an argument like nobody's angry. Nobody's yelling. And I couldn't tell you what they were at this point because it's just, you know, it's water under the bridge. It's just, you know, whatever. Is, is it more like a passionate debate then? Yeah, I think we just each make our points and, you know, either we convince the other or ultimately, you know, like if I've scripted a page and I mean, if Scott just isn't just dead set against doing it, I mean, he does have the power to just draw it however he's going to draw it. Yeah. And it's all up to me to, you know, adjust the script accordingly. And... But, you know, we, we, we don't really argue in that way. If he was that dead set against it, he would tell me, you know, here, here's why I don't like it. Here's what I would prefer to do. And I would hear that and I, I would process that and be like, oh, yeah, all right. You have a good point. Do it your way. Yeah, I mean, I think I must admit, what I like the most about Atomic Robo um, and reading Atomic Robo is that it feels like every time you read it, like it's a breath of, um, of fresh air. There's so many comic books out there that are definitely darker, grim, violent that there seems like there's not a whole lot of kind of just fun, relaxing, funny comic books out there right now. Yeah, there. I mean, there have been some more since we started. Uh, definitely when we first came out, which I think would have been October 27, or 2007, uh, we were very rare. You know, a book uh, with our tone where it's just, here, here, let's have some fun, let's have an adventure, and uh, and see where it takes us. Not to say that like we've sparked some sort of mini revolution or anything. You know, people are going to do the comics they're going to do, but there have been more comics in that vein since. But we're still, you know, definitely the minority. You know, yeah, look at stuff like Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. You know, that was having a lot of fun. They're still doing that, aren't they? Um, I know Eric is often. See, the problem with Marvel, I cannot keep up with it with their cancellations. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> so that's that's a huge part of the problem right there. Is that people are trying to do these fun books. But um, the guys in charge of the money are like, eh, it didn't sell. It wasn't the top three seller this year, this month, so canceled. A book like Atomic Robo with our sales numbers would just never get anywhere, you know, if it was held to, the, to that sort of standard. 
I, I must admit, I think for me, the only close comparison on some level is ever, um, I read The Goon a lot, which is sort of like the darker, kind of more violent horror version of what Atomic Robo is for <laughs> science. And I, I think that's like the only one I can think of that is basically just a story about, you know, that is, a, you know, about having a good time and enjoyment. And it's not taking itself so extremely seriously. Yeah. Well, like, we, I, I think we strike an interesting balance where I personally don't even think of Atomic Robo as a comedy book. I mean, clearly there's jokes in it, but my thinking that is that it's a bit more like Indiana Jones or, or uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, where it's an adventure and there's funny stuff in it to sort of punctuate what's happening. You know, you, you like Indy because he's a bit of a, you know, if he has some funny reactions. It gives him a little bit of humanity to what would otherwise be just a really flat sort of pulp character. And so that's sort of the vein we're, we're shooting for. I mean, some uh, adventures are funnier than others. It's just the way life is. Well, I think one thing I, I do like Atomic Robo is that for a character that basically is a robot, he does have so much humanity in that character. He does seem to be, you know, does have that sense of humor, but is does have also, like I said, a full rounded personality. And I think that's fantastic about the character. Yeah. So with regard to, to Robo himself, I something that, you know, I've always liked robot characters. I'm a sci-fi nerd since I can even remember. But I just, I'm kind of tired of, some, you know, the robot character tropes. You know, I, right now, actually, uh, my girlfriend and I were re-watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, good uh, show. We do that every so often, every <laughs> every couple of years, because we're just, we're nerds. Well, and, I'm, I'm going to interrupt just for one second. What do you sure. feel about, what, how do you feel about the new Star Trek, Discovery okay. and Picard? Okay. So here's the thing. Ever, so, I don't, I don't know. I don't like the new movies. Okay. Uh, I saw some, I didn't see Discovery. I think it, we this was back when we used to do conventions. Scott was listening or watching the new episode on his laptop or on his iPad or something. Uh, and I just happened to be in the room and, and you know, he was watching it and that's fine. And uh, so I could overhear it. And it was fine. You know, whatever. Sounded like Star Trek, except the computer voice wasn't uh, Magil Barrett. And I, mm. because she's dead. I yes. mean, I, I, so I don't, I understand <laughs> why. Yeah, it's, it's tough to get her these days. So I get it. I, I totally understand, you know, why they don't have her. But I was like, that's not Trek. I, I can't do it. I can't make it. I can't make that jump without her being the computer voice. Um, oh, no, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, do, I do say, I, for me, Discovery got better by the second season. I think it took me a while to accept it as Star Trek. But once sure. I finally just bought in, I think it, it worked. Like once I was ready to just go, all right, fine. The Klingons look like this. The characters <laughs> look like this. Screw it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to buy in and just go yeah. for it. I mean, I, I, you know, a lot of my friends watch it and I, I've heard good things, but I just have a real problem with the entire JJification of Star Trek, this bizarre action movie version of Trek. And, and the, the way the plots have, have gotten a little further, like I'm very critical of Roddenberry's influence over early next generation. The show feels like it's from 1967 in the first few seasons and it's maddening. And you can see his weird seventies sex, weird guy stuff vibe coming through and a lot of <laughs> <Yep>. plots, <laughs> but he did, but what he did bring to the show was this, this optimism about the future that was really the heart of Trek. And to see Star Trek as a property increasingly become about the corruption and the darkness of the Federation. It's just really annoying. We have enough of that in real life. <laughs> Trek is about getting away from that and, and having the bravery and the audacity to imagine, if not a perfect future, one that is much better than anything that you know we see today. And to give us 
you know, all something to look forward to or to aim for. As unrealistic and ridiculous as it may be, the mere fact that we can imagine a future like that, uh, I think, is very powerful. Uh, so I, I swear I had friends growing up. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure you had some friends, some made up, some real, I'm sure. Yeah, Let's, we don't need to get into numbers. <laughs> so you're comparing, were you going to compare data with Atomic Robo? Yeah, so, you know, the robot, I mean, everybody loves data, but yeah. he's a very standard robot character. Oh, I don't have emotions. Oh, what is the meaning of humanity? Oh, I'm not really alive. You know, you see a hundred of these characters just like that, these robot characters like that. Yeah. And I just I just wanted to, to see a robot character that wasn't exactly like every other robot character that we've seen. And really, he, he is a robot primarily to solve a bunch of narrative problems. Part of why we, we do Atomic Robo, or part of the whole point of Atomic Robo, was to tell these very comic booky adventure stories, but in a way that was accessible. You would never call the X-Men accessible, right? There's a million right. timelines, there's a million reboots, there's a million teams happening all at the same time. It's crazy. But with Atomic Robo, if, if he's a robot, you already know he's ageless, he's super strong, he's uh, bulletproof, you know. So you don't need to explain how he's been around since 1920 and, how he, and why he's still around today. You can have adventures across the entire 20th century uh, and beyond, and people will just buy into it. And we've realized over the years that having a completely impossible character be your title character means that people will then accept a whole lot of other stuff that's just crazy and, and just let you have fun, you know? You don't have, there's no, what is it, that cinema sins? Mm, yeah, that's a plot hole. No, it's not. It's just, story, <laughs> it's just storytelling and you're an idiot. <laughs> no, I think that's a great aspect of Atomic Robot, that he is, like you said, there's a timeliness, timelessness to the character. And that has allowed a lot of inserts in, into, you know, with history into the character, which I find fascinating. You have Tesla... You've introduced Edison. You've talked about Adam Turing a lot, especially in the new series. And yeah. I do think that adds an extra layer to the character that gives him a little more foundation in kind of like reality. So you take the extreme of the character, but you do kind of give him some grounding with history. Yeah, a really big influence on what I wanted Atomic Robo to feel as a comic book, as a story, was watching Dragnet as a kid. And that doesn't make any sense. Usually when I pitch Atomic Robo, I say, you know, it's Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Buckaroo Banzai, and the Rocketeer. <laughs> because that, you know, that's all these adventures, and it's very pulpy. It's scientists and, and just big, crazy adventures. That all makes sense. I never tell them, oh, and it's also Dragnet, because that just makes people go, what? <laughs> uh, I don't want them to go, what? I want them to go, I want to buy it. So with Dragnet, the, but the thing about Dragnet is that it's this, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's, you know, it's whatever I, it's a it's the first procedural cop show it's the uh, just the facts ma'am right right it's that yeah but so the, the and not to play up copaganda but the idea of the show was that they would just show police just going about the the work you know just and no matter what no matter how boring it was in effect <laughs> they would just show it uh yeah. and they wouldn't take time to explain oh this is why they're doing this step this is what this bit of jargon means they would just go through it and you would kind of ha you would have to piece it together, you know, as you watch multiple episodes. And so my that's kind of what I wanted to do with Robo, where they are dealing with the fantastic, you know, they're they're fighting clockwork pyramids and evil scientist dinosaurs and all kinds of crazy stuff. But to them, this is just the normal day to day stuff. This is just the job. You know, you just show up and you, and you take care of business and you move on. Uh, now, so yeah, so it's, it's grounded in reality, but but in a way that lets us play with the fantastic. Now, one 
good thing about the comic book as well that you do you at least you make references to a lot of scientific ideas. I mean, I'm not sure how real you know, is the science that you're talking about true science or is it <laughs> that Star Trek fantasy science? It's a little bit of both. There, there's some psychotechno babble just because that's fun. Again, you know, I watched too much Trek as a kid. <laughs> yes, and I, and I love that stuff. But we do this thing where we kind of. I also am just as you know, as I said earlier, I'm a big sci-fi nerd, but I'm also a big uh, real life science nerd. I, I enjoy you know reading about different discoveries and different theories and all kinds of crazy stuff. But the the fun thing about Atomic Robo is that we can kind of slap these things together in a way that doesn't really work, right? Like it doesn't right, matter. Right. It just sounds fun, and or it's this excuse to amplify the scope of the adventure, or, or to have a big explosion, whatever. It's an excuse for fun. But one thing that I like, but I, I like to do is that Atomic Robo is kind of also just an excuse for me to read a bunch of history and a bunch of you know science articles under the guise of quote unquote research. And some of that stuff does show up in the comics. Certainly, uh, the bulk of my research is really more about what not to include. <laughs> so that I can just, so I can just zero in on you know what would be the, the thing that sounds fun or or would be fun, but uh, see because part of the problem with, with writing in general, not necessarily comics, but you, you see it you do see it in comics and and more often in uh, prose novels, is that you can tell that when an author is talking about a subject that they've done a lot of research on or that they're very personally passionate about, so they just know a lot about it, and they shoehorn in all these facts or these conversations where they just really get to sort of bathe, luxuriate in this knowledge and sharing it because they're, they're just excited by it. Mm. Uh, and, and they want to share this knowledge or, or these facts with, with an audience. And that's cool and that's fun, but it just totally destroys the story. Like, it'll, it's <laughs> like, yeah, I get that this is interesting or at least that it's interesting to you. But in regards to me as an audience member, this is killing your story. <laughs> I, I get it already. Let's move on. So, I try not to do that in Atomic Robo, but what I like to do is you know, zero in on that fun bit of, of the, you know, if I research for, well, what I like to say is that 95% of my research never gets into the book, but it's not wasted because that's what's telling me which 5% to put into the book. Gotcha. But I like to sprinkle in just little touches here and there, little side visuals, you know, in the background or a little line of dialogue that you wouldn't even notice uh, unless you are an expert in whatever field it is that we're kind of touching on. And it's there so that the people who know this stuff for real, like I, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I don't know physics, but I know a lot about physics because I've just researched about uh, a lot about it. There's just these little hints that are like, okay, we did our research. We know this is impossible. Here's a little tidbit that, that <laughs> shows you, this isn't just me just making up stupid stuff or trying right, to sound right, right. smart. This is, we know we did it wrong. Here's your little tidbit to let you know that we did it wrong. That gives us permission to do it wrong. Just trust us and, and let us have fun. And then I've heard from actual scientists who are like, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> so so you tell me there's no actual vampire dim dimension? I didn't say that. <laughs> you just now can't tell us? Yeah, now you're putting words in my mouth. <laughs> so one of the great uh, characters that you've had, or at least you use in your comic book um, series over the last few, uh, decade is that you use Nicholas Tesla a lot, who's a fa fascinating character. I was wondering what fascinates you about Tesla. Oh, yeah. So we didn't mean to use Tesla, actually. That, that wasn't our intent. Again, I was doing my, my research thing, just looking at different uh, turn-of-the-century scientists to sort of come up with an amalgam, right, of th this fictional person will be Robo's inventor. Uh, so obviously I come across Nikola Tesla. And I've come across Tesla before, you know, just tangentially here and there, just, again, being a sci-fi nerd. 
but I, I'd never really delved into Tesla. So once I was looking for this mad scientist character to make up, came across Tesla, dove into his life history and his work, and I was like, oh, we, we hello, this guy who was real, and and with Atomic Robo, even in those early days, we were thinking. Whenever we can use real history, let's tend to do that. Let's try to do that because uh, Scott and I are just big history nerds. We love playing around with history, not even just you know 20th century, but you know ancient history as well. And so any opportunity we have to use real events or real people, we'd like to include them, if, if not use them outright, simply to sort of spark an interest in the readership, right? Like, you know, we're, not that this comic book is some any in any way a biography of Tesla, but maybe you see Tesla doing cool stuff in the comic, and you're thinking, oh, you know, I've heard that name. Oh, he seems like a pretty cool guy. And this character may want to research him, and you know, you'll read up the Wikipedia article, and you'll go, well, I don't believe nine tenths of this. There's no way any of this is real. I'm going to read a real book about it. Yeah. And you know, you just keep going. And we like to do that with you know whatever historical period it is. Hopefully, there's something there that. We, we've dropped a little hint about history or we've alluded to an event or Robo is doing stuff around a different event. And, you know, somebody thinks, oh, that sounds cool. Maybe I'll look into that. Oh, oh I, I was wondering, talk about Nicholas Tesla. Have you ever seen the movie The Prestige with David Bowie as Nicholas Tesla? Tesla? Oh, of course. Yeah. What, what did you think about the portrayal? Oh, well, I liked it. You know, there's it's not a movie about Tesla, so I don't feel like it has to you know, super zero in on it. But he for the role that he played in the film this sort of enigmatic near wizard in this world of, you know, stage magicians, you know, I think it worked. Plus Bowie has his own otherworldliness that he brings to any role. So, you know, it worked. Yeah. Really. I thought they did a great job, especially it seems like Tesla, there is a sort of mystery that surrounds Tesla historically. And it seems like over the years, not only is he getting more credit, but there's team seems to be all sorts of mythology built around him. And I was, yeah. And I feel like you do tap into that as well in your Atomic Robo. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, even the fact that we suggested he could have built this atomic-powered sentient robot in 1923, you know, it, it's impossible. But at the same time, it kind of makes sense for Tesla. Like, it's not outside the realm of what he claimed to be capable of. <laughs> and, and, you know, some of that of his mythology, uh, you know, some of it is of his own making. You know, towards the end of his life, you, he claimed to be capable of making these death rays. That were really just an extension of other sort of ray technology that he, he talked about over the years. And nobody really knows quite how close he was to accomplishing any of that because technically it's plausible. In fact, the whole reason... Okay, so this is going to get into a little bit of a, a tangent. Yeah, go ahead. Back in, World, back in World War II, when that was first gearing up, so late 30s, all the industrial powers were pursuing nuclear technologies, not for weapons necessarily, but for power. Everyone figured that it was physically possible, just nobody knew how yet, or how difficult it would be, or how expensive it would be. But according to the laws of physics, as understood at the time, there was no reason that it would be impossible. And in fact, could probably, with enough money and resources, be done within the lifetime of the people doing it. So, you know, probably by the 60s, we could have, figure out nuclear power. So then World War II happens. And that really accelerates interest in various government projects to weaponize, you know, atomic energy. There would be this massive, you know, benefit, whether that's for generating energy or just a straight up destructive ability. I think was uh, the latter, the pure destructive power is probably the most interest to everybody because that would be the easiest to do just because the difficulties of 
yeah, harnessing nuclear power is easy to it's easy to light a fire, but it's hard to cook food on it, I guess, whatever. <laughs> so everybody's trying different methods because again, this is all you know new technology. it's all highly theoretical. The one industrialized nation that's really strongly pursuing this that doesn't go with nuclear power is Japan. They decided on essentially the Tesla death ray proposal because back in the, I want to say early 30s, Tesla was making a big publicity push for establishing the essentially death rays that would create, in his mind, world peace. You would, you would put these giant weaponized towers along national borders and they would just vaporize anything that comes along. Yeah. And, so therefore, and so therefore, you know, why would you even bother having war? Like the, you would have all these armies and they would just be destroyed. You'd have all these tanks and, and warships and airplanes and such, but they would be useless. They would be destroyed before they ever got to the enemy territory. Therefore, end of war. Nobody yeah. really looks into this because, again, much like nuclear power, well, it sounds plausible, but probably very difficult, et cetera. Japan makes this gamble. They're like, we are an island nation. If we make death rays like Tesla says is possible, that's it. We're invincible. We can't be invaded. So that's why they never pursued uh, the bomb. They were trying to work on uh, death ray technology just because of having heard about it from Tesla. And at the time, I, we, we can hear that now and think, well, that was kind of stupid. But that's, of course, with the benefit of 70 years of you know knowledge. At the time, it was a 50-50 shot of which would be more plausible and and if either could even be accomplished, nobody really knew if they would pull off nuclear power in time or nuclear bombs in time. And Japan didn't know either. And they thought, well, you know, of the two, this is the death ray theory is the one that benefits us the most. So that's what we're going to try to do. Didn't work out. Uh, spoiler alert for World yeah. War II. Was, was there any concept of how close they got to figuring it out? There was... I, I did. So this came up in our research. They didn't have any sort of death ray, but the, there was evidence of uh, a lot of their research and some of their early practical experiments in sort of ray gun technology in effect not for not like man portable like buck rogers or anything but essentially what we would, we would now understand to be sort of a early particle accelerator yeah there, there was a, a tv show that came out I, i'm trying to remember the name of it it was maybe on discovery or something like that called i think it was called dark matters that had to do with like strange science and there was a story about tesla that he did something at one of his wherever he his labs or wherever he does that mm -hmm. created some sort of explosion in like Russia and they were oh, yeah, trying the, to and the Tegoska incident. Yeah, that, that's what they covered that. I thought I mean it was fascinating. I mean, I'm not sure how much you can buy into it, but still oh, it's no, kind of but, a, no Tunguska was a completely natural phenomenon. I just actually read a really good theory on it. I think it was like I think it was like an asteroid just sort of skipped off the atmosphere. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, so like to actually enter the atmosphere, you have to kind of you know, be at a proper angle. Otherwise, the you just break up in the atmosphere. It's true of spacecraft. It's true of meteorites. I mean, that's shooting stars. It's just asteroids or meteorites or whatever uh, just disintegrating in the atmosphere. Uh, so, I, I, but I think that, but also there's many angles that, depending on your speed, instead of entering and being destroyed or entering safely and landing and then possibly being destroyed, you would just bounce right off. So I think the theory is that it was just one of these random space rocks, and it just happened to hit the atmosphere at a glancing blow in such a way that the atmosphere itself you know, bounced it off harmlessly. But that bounce creates this massive shockwave within the atmosphere itself, which then radiated down and blasted down this luckily uninhabited you know, area of forest. Yeah, and, and I, th I think one cool thing about, once again, what, what you're doing with Tesla is that it seems on some level to follow a 
let's, let's say a narrative historically that's going on right now with it seems within the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years, because you also have Thomas Edison as your villain, that the credit of Thomas Edison for being a great inventor has started to decline as it's been determined that he has he actually bought most of his inventions instead of a credit that he's taking credit for. Well, Tesla seems to be going up in estimation as being a better scientist. And once again, that's a rivalry you have in your comic book series, especially older, some of the older issues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Tesla, you, when you read about him, he's just not at all a businessman, just, just flat out not a businessman. He just wanted to invent things and ideally to, to benefit humanity as a whole. A very altru- altruistic fellow, whereas Edison, a pretty good scientist and an amazing businessman. So he definitely won the marketing campaign overall and just had had more name recognition and just, you know, he won the PR game. And But I think that over the years, people are starting to re-examine, you know, Tesla and, and Edison and coming to different conclusions. Now, a couple of, I think it was five, four or five years ago, I was able to interview you for um, BurrowCon, which was uh, I sent emails and you were l- nice enough to respond to me. And one question I got to ask you was, what was your beef with Thomas Edison? Because you made him your villain. And that was actually before I knew how much of a dick Thomas Edison <laughs> proved to be historically. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering to myself, did you know he was such a dick when you decided to, he was going to be your villain? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you research Tesla, you can't help but come across Edison, and Edison doesn't come off well in that story. And, you know, then you read up more about Edison himself, and, yeah, you realize he really, he had more of a, uh, he comes across a lot more as as like a modern tech bro, almost. You know, he's the prototype for that, where it's this major pitch man, and, yeah, he does have some good ideas, but not necessarily to anyone's benefit but Edison's. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he did win the battle of history, though. Like I said, for yeah. a very long time, he was yeah. considered one of the great geniuses. We're I mean, backing off that now. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing is that Tesla won the, the War of the Currents. Their big you know, ideological battle, which kind of electrical current would be best to electrify you know, the world, in, in essence. And Tesla won. It was alternating current. That was the, the, the technology that was uh, most useful for propagating generating and propagating electrical energy safely and cheaply to you know every home in america and across the world and so on and yet edison's the one who built you know a lot of these power stations using tesla's technology you know it's just the way it was yeah i mean it's just one of the interesting i think little side things you put into your comic book that once again that made it just far more interesting for me and so just going back a little bit to atomic um to atomic robo I th- one of the things that you did that was kind of interesting is that you actually killed off Atomic Robo in one of your series in um, Red 5. Was that were, at the time when you killed him off, were you thinking that you were going to keep him killed off or were you thinking of you're, you knew you were going to bring him back eventually? Oh, no. We knew exactly what we were doing. That was a, a long, again, being a sci-fi nerd, I'm a huge time travel you know, uh, maniac. I love time travel stories. And so uh, back when we first introduced Dr. Dinosaur, you know, he's this velociraptor. Oh, well, okay, I got to back that up. He is this Jurassic Park version of, of a velociraptor <laughs> who claims to be a time-traveling genius from, I forget which, Zoic era. And he and the robo's like, no, you know, time travel is impossible. You you aren't even a real dinosaur. Look at you. You're from the Jurassic Park movies. You're clearly <laughs> just a, a modern-day genetic experiment. You know, you're out of your mind. So we planted that story back in, I think, 2009. 
where Robo is just very plainly says, you know, no such thing as time travel. There's another story where because of quote unquote time travel, uh, Robo meets several versions of himself from the 30s and the 50s and 70s and in the modern day. Technically, that wasn't time travel. That was a weird space warp thing happening because of this crazy monster. So again, we stand, but again, we, we had Robo flat out state, this isn't time travel, time travel is impossible, so don't worry about it. So for years, we had the reader uh, readership accept, okay, in this setting, there just is no time travel. The main character even said so a couple times. He seems to be right. No, <laughs> we, <laughs> we did all that just to set up the fact that Dr. Dinosaur would force Robo to time travel and have to have a little adventure and, and confront the fact that he that Robo was wrong about that. And also confront the fact that Dr. Dinosaur was actually right about something, which is terrifying. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Dinosaur is a fantastic character, by the way. He's, every time he's in the story, it just adds an extra, um, it just elevates it a little bit more. I, I, he's hilarious. Yeah, he's a lot of fun to write. Well, he's also really difficult to write because anything I think of, no matter how stupid it is, makes perfect sense. And so it's really hard to have a story and have a plot and have an end goal in mind with something like that in the middle of it, right? Like you can go in any direction and all of it makes sense. It's all completely plausible if Dr. Dinosaur is in there. (laughs) We try to limit how much of him there is simply because it would be easy to go the Marvel route, right? And have Deadpool or Wolverine in every single issue of every single title because he's popular. You know, everybody loves Dr. Dinosaur. He's a lot of fun. But we try to to keep him pretty minimized so that when you see him, it's a treat. You know, everyone burned out on Deadpool. Everyone burned out on Wolverine. You know, he they were these characters. Love him, or you know, whether you like him not uh, or not now, they were really popular, and they were exciting for a little while. Uh, but then they started showing up everywhere. Now it's like I don't care that as much. <laughs> uh, and we just don't want to take away that excitement from people, right? You know, we we want them to be happy when Doctor Dinosaur shows up. We don't want ugh. Not this again. We we just saw this guy three months ago. Why is he back? So we, it, we we try to keep him on a leash, as it were. But he has it, a lot of fun. Is and, there ever a danger when you bring in Doctor Dinosaur that he could outshine Atomic Robo when oh, they're together? I, I think he does every time. I think that's part of the charm of having him show up every so often. For me, the, the Doctor Dinosaur functions like uh, I don't know how prevalent Warner Brothers old Warner Brothers cartoons are anymore. When I was growing up. Looney Tunes and Mary Melodies were on, you know, three or four different channels about five hours a day. So Bugs Bunny is is our Dr. Dinosaur, or it, I'm sorry, is our Atomic Robo. He's a bit of a trickster. He's the hero. He's going to outwit whatever's going on. No matter how impossible the odds are, he's going to win. And you kind of know that going into the story. It's not a mystery that Robo is going to be victorious eventually. It's just kind of fun to see how he comes up with it, how he tricks the bad guy or, or what little twist he comes up with to, to become victorious. My favorite Bugs Bunny cartoons are the, there's two of them that star Cecil Turtle. And it's, a, I think the first time he shows up, it's, it's sort of a play on the, tur- the tortoise and the hare parable. Yes. And, and the Cecil Turtle is the only character that always beats Bugs Bunny. That is our Dr. Dinosaur. When he shows up, the standard rules that you understand about how this world work, how this character is going to function, Dr. Don- how Tom Crowe is going to function in the story, doesn't matter doesn't work for him anymore. Dr. Dinosaur is now the center of the story, and he's <laughs> going to win. Even if he's defeated, he has won because he's made Robo look foolish, or he's thwarted Robo in some way, or Robo's victory still doesn't really stop Dr. Dinosaur. Like, he's going to show up again. Now, 
with Dr. Dinosaur, I like I said, I know you said you didn't want to overuse him. Have you been tempted to create a miniseries for Dr. Dinosaur? Oh, yeah. And in, in, in that respect, I don't think that would be overexposure because that would be its own, like, you know, we, we've done these side projects. We usually call them real science adventures. Yep. And one was about the, the flying she devils. Another one was about this group back during the, just before the first crusades back in Byzantium. Another one was about Tesla and, and his crew of adventurers from before he built Atomic Robo. And I think in that context, doing a purely Dr. Dinosaur story or one that he features in heavily, I think would be fine. We have a pretty good one in mind that we just haven't gotten around to doing. So, so it's definitely not outside the, the realm of possibility. Is it difficult to write a character like Dr. Dinosaur because he is, one, insane. There's a lot of stories that he can do, but he's also, you know, definitely on the goofy side as well. Does having that many possibilities for the character make it harder to create a, I'm trying to think of maybe not grounded, but you know I'm saying uh, to think of what to do with a character like that can go anywhere. Well, yeah, the hard part is just keeping him corralled enough to actually tell a story. Because, again, any stupid idea that pops in my mind while I'm writing it, any stupid tangent, any ridiculous new idea or whatever, that if it comes from Dr. Dinosaur, if it's something he claims to be true, then that's a whole side conversation that can be delved into and argued with. Or if it's just some bizarre backup plan that makes no sense and nobody would have thought of, but it makes, but the reader wouldn't feel that way. They would be like, yeah, that's Dr. Dinosaur. Of course he, he set that up. So it's really, it, it becomes very difficult to actually manage the character in a way where you, you are trying to tell a coherent story. It's worth the challenge every time because I think the results are always a lot of fun. But it is, it's just difficult for essentially to choose which version of events to go with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, as far as, not from a, necessarily a story standpoint, but from an audience standpoint, when you watch some of the movies with the Joker and Batman, like Batman or the Dark Knight, where you have a character in, in the, who's the villain, but is such a dynamic character and grabs your attention so much that on some level you do shift <laughs> yeah. allegiance on some level to that character. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Dr. Dinosaur is definitely the Joker to, to Batman or to Robo's Batman. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so going to some other, another thing I was wondering about. So Atomic Robo starts off originally with Red 5, why did he move ahead to IDW? Oh, didn't. So we had always, even with when we were back when we were with Red 5, we really wanted to publish online for free as well. Because I came from webcomics before Atomic Robo, I was working on 8-Bit Theater. So for years and years, I've been doing a webcomic. I had tons of friends who were also making a living doing webcomics. And at the time, you know, transitioning into print, my theory was that there was no danger in releasing it online for free because these were two different audiences. You know, this was back in 2007 and nobody had, no publishers were doing anything digital, right? There was no yep. comiXology, there were no PDFs. There might have been uh, Marvel's kind of crappy thing where you, it was like a subscription service and you could get some of their issues digitally, but the, you had to do it through this really awkward online portal. I forget when exactly that was established, but anyway... So my theory was, having been a, a print comics fan and reader and a web comics creator, that these were two very distinct audiences. That people who wanted the comic book experience, the printed issue, the trade paperback, they didn't care that it was online for free. Maybe they would read it online for free, maybe they wouldn't. They wanted the experience of going to the shows and going to the comic shops and owning that, that physical item and having it on the shelf and 
enjoying it, you know, enjoying that ownership versus the, the webcomic reader. They don't care that it's, that they can buy it, right? They just want to read the thing. Some of them might buy it just because they love it. Uh, it's two different audiences. So we, we kind of had this conversation every so often, every couple of years with Red 5. And to their credit, and, and this was quite bold for back then and for such a, a small publisher, they, were even, they, they weren't even against it. They were like, you know, we hear what you're saying and we know that you, you come from webcomics, so we, we kind of trust what your instinct is here. But we're afraid to actually do it because we're afraid of the, re- the comic book retailer backlash because we're, so, we're such a small-time outfit. You know, if, if we kind of – if we are, are doing this and they see it as a threat, we really – you know, they, they could just stop supporting us. Then we're not going to sell any comic books. We're not going to make any money. And then, you know, then what? And I totally sympathize with that. Uh, again, this would have been very early days. This was back before Comixology had even dominated the digital uh, comics market. So they weren't wrong for having that position. But it just came eventually. I think this would have been 2009 or 2010 or something. I think. I, I could be totally wrong on that date. But anyway, the contract that we had signed with Red 5 was coming up. It was about to expire. And so we said, we, we just said, you know, okay, we been happy dealing with you guys. You know, you've treated us very well over the years. But we're going to start putting Comic Online for free. This, that's That has to be part of the new deal. And you know, that was essentially when they were just like, no, you know, can't do it. We're afraid of pissing off all the retailers and the backlash that would cause us. And so we were like, well, then we, we cannot sign up with you. You know, this is kind of like our red line. This is something that we want to do to help bring Atomic Robo to the next level. And so, you know, we just had to part ways at that point. And, and the plan then was that we would do what we're doing now, which was put the comic online for free and do new hardcover editions through Kickstarter. So we started doing that. And I think it was during the first Kickstarter campaign where we were going to reprint the entire back catalog, which at that time would have been the first nine volumes uh, in hardcover for the first time. It's all new bonus material and all kinds of nice stuff. IDW just came across that. and They were like, hey, we see you're not with uh, Red 5 anymore, so are, do you have any plans to be in the direct market? And we were like, no, you know, it's just too much trouble for me and Scott. You know, we're just a couple of guys. And to, to manually put ourselves in the direct market it's just a lot of hassle. Diamond is a very difficult company to deal with. Oh, that's the most polite way I can put it. <laughs> Which is fine. You know, whatever. It is whatever. Right, right. He was like, well, we like Atomic Robo. Can we do it? Can we, you know, if we just, if you guys just give us, since you're just making comics anyway, you know, just give us the files. Uh, we'll print the issues for you. And we'll just, you know, include that in our print runs for whatever it is we're doing. And, uh, you know, do you want soft cover trades? Because I see you guys are doing hardcovers now. And we'll just do all that through the direct market. And, you know just free money for everybody. And we're like, oh yeah, sure, whatever, sounds fun. You know, and we signed some paperwork and, and we're, we were off. Didn't occur to me at the time that IDW is one of the biggest publishers. Yeah. We were just like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> that sounds cool. You know, whatever you want to do, it's fine. So that's how we ended up with IDW. They were just, they saw an opportunity and they took it. Is that the reason on your website, you list Atomic Robo as being a web comic, is that the reason why it's labeled that way, or is it, are you going back to a web, mo- a prim- primarily web format? Oh no, you know, it's it, we put it all online generally first, and then because of the, the way the publishing schedules are, you know, sometimes we just happen to get a whole lot of pages done, a whole couple issues done before you know IDW is ready to start printing them, and uh, so you know we just start putting them online, and sometimes the print schedule catches up, sometimes the print issue, you know, towards the end of our run. 
maybe the print issue comes out before the online edition, whatever. I think it's just easier to call it a webcomic, especially online, you know, because you're already kind of in that ecosphere, right? You're already online, so you may as well Mm. call it a webcomic without complicating the issue that, well, technically we're a webcomic, but technically we self-publish hardcovers, (laughs) but technically you can also get it through your uh, local comic book store, but not the hardcovers, but definitely this issue, I mean, you you know. (laughs) Right, right is this uh, sentence with 17 different clauses and like nobody has time for that. Nobody cares. You know, just let them read the comic. If they're going to read it online, that's great. If they don't realize it's available in the comic shop, you know, they'll figure it out eventually, whether that's through us just, you know, talking about, Oh, Hey, you know, this is available. Go buy it. Or they just see it on the shelf, whatever, you know, they'll figure it out. They'll buy what they want to buy and and they'll read what they want to read. So IDW is the fourth largest um, publisher in in the in the country. Yeah, and we um, like idiots just we did no research. We didn't. We were we were barely polite to them when they contacted us because we were at this time we were just sick of the direct market. Not I want to be absolutely clear. Not sick of Red Five. They were they always treated us great. We had an excellent experience with them. Just the direct market itself, essentially Diamond being such a pain being such a cancer on the entire American comics industry. So we were like, eh, we just don't need that. We're, we're going to do our own thing. And then IDW comes along. Oh, hey, uh, we were thinking maybe we'd print you. Yeah, if you want to, that's fine. Do whatever. We don't care. <laughs> just send the checks and be prompt. And, and then, you know, so once the paperwork's all signed, then I look into it. Oh, they're the fourth biggest publisher. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, Marvel, I mean, DC, and Image are, are the only things in, in front of them. Like, that's huge. So what what you really need to do is go to Marvel and try to blow them off and just keep the the, the series going that there way. You go. Yeah, <laughs> just just blow up one publisher at a time. Yeah, now, off. yeah. Why not? Is, is there added pressure with um, knowing that you're now your comic book is part of the fourth largest company in America, or the, the, it doesn't change anything for you? No, nah, no. Nah, I mean, you know, Scott and I have always just wanted to, to tell the best stories that we can, have the most fun doing it that we can, and uh, you know, we don't really think about it in those term in the terms of. You know, we, oh, we got to live up to whatever standard. You know, we're just trying to keep ourselves entertained, and and hopefully, people just like what we're doing. Now, your latest title that you had, uh, at least your latest miniseries, was Atomic Robo: Dawn of a New Era, which ended March two thousand nineteen. Yes, so that's a pretty long time between a miniseries. Are, are we going to we're seeing it back anytime soon? Oh yeah. Atomic so Robo? yeah. So part of that is that, like I said earlier, Scott and I were working on another creator-owned project. So he was working on that throughout most of 2019. His work on that has been done for a while. So now he's back to drawing the new volume of Atomic Robo, Atomic Robo and the Vengeful Dead. So we're, we're in the middle of working on that. Uh, I think we're going. Yeah, I think we're going to start seeing pages of that online later this year. So luckily, I mean the pandemic's kind of screwed up comics publishing, but it doesn't stop the webcomic. So we should have that for you guys uh, coming up pretty soon. All right, good. like I said, cause I've been wait- looking for a new series, and I was, I, was saying, I, was, I was thinking the last time I remembered a new Atomic Robo store, I was like, it's been, I don't know, a lifetime ago, maybe? <laughs> it feels like <laughs> it, yeah. Now, um, I, I did really did enjoy Dawn of a New Era, and I think you have a great character with Alan. Oh, yeah. Again, yeah. it's another robot, and he's kind of, on some level, a little HAL 9000-ish, at least from when you think of maybe where he, you know, the original how Alan came from. Yeah. Is, yeah, is so he, oh, go ahead. Alan's kind of like our so you know, like I was saying earlier, we didn't want Robo to be just another robot character. He didn't want it to be another data or bender from Futurama or whatever. Alan is kind of our opportunity to play around with the sorts of plots you can do with data, but 
But I feel like with Robo there as sort of this foil, it's not just, it, it still feels a little fresh, right? Because is, this isn't merely Alan wishing he was human, because he doesn't. You know, he quite likes being a robot, just like Robo. But it's sort of like Alan figuring out how to integrate into society because he's new to the whole concept of society and being around people and, and just kind of, and just being curious about the world around him and wanting to become a part of it, which I think is a, it's a, you get a little bit of that with data, but that, but I think the writers kind of unimaginably hinged it a little bit more on this bizarre notion that he had no emotions, even though, I mean, he displays emotions throughout the series, but that's yeah. a whole other, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah. It, it is funny how, um, with data, they always say he has no emotion, but he seems to, you know, he has curiosity, which is not sort of like an emotion. Yeah. They obviously show him sort of angry at times. Yeah. It, it, it's, he had emotions when plot necessitated. Yeah. Emotions. I mean, uh, I mean, he has friendships. He has people he cares about. He, I, ah, don't get me started. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's a soft. That's a soft area for you. We'll we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll slowly back away from that one. Thank you. So, so Alan, is he okay? Someone who's read does a lot of reading and especially reads comic books looks sure. at Alan and how he's introduced and how he's perceived by a lot of the side characters around Alan. And the first thing we think about is. Oh my God, he's your next supervillain. <laughs> yes. Um, is he going to go Hal nine thousand, or he's going to say more like a Sal nine thousand? See, I, oh, that's nice. Not not <laughs> not too many people are into the two thousand ten. That's well done. Uh, oh, it's it's a, it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good book too. Uh, well, how should I answer this? So, we're, hmm. all I can say is you got to keep reading. Oh wow. Okay, that's a little mysterious. Yeah. Well, I I really, I because I can't stand. It's not that I can't stand spoilers, because I, I go out of my way to spoil my stuff on all kinds of stuff. But I really like what we what, part of what we do with Dom Grobo is that I try to present stuff in a way that is surprising but not a pointless twist. Which is to say, you know, I, I want you guys, readers, to think about, to expect certain things, right? And then to just subvert it a little bit, not in like a jerk way or not in a completely out of nowhere way that is we're, you know, just a twist for the sake of a twist. I can't stand that. You see a so, lot of that in movies these days. So no, but, uh, I'm not shouting on or right. whatever his name is. <laughs> yeah, none of that. But uh, but I do want, I, I, but I, I like to surprise readers. Uh, again, like like I said with with Tom Crobo and Doctor Dinosaur, establishing beyond a shadow of a doubt there is no time travel, and we did that specifically to time travel Robo to annoy him and to, to let that be a surprise to readers. Like, oh boy, this happened! I can't believe it! Yay! Uh, <laughs> so so Alan, you know, clearly there is. Certain characters think and, and are worried that he could go a certain way based on his origins. And I will say, as not as the Arthur, not as the author's voice, but as a sort of independent outside observer, they aren't wrong to have that opinion. But Robo's argument that, you know, that Alan won't be a threat in that way because we're integrating him into society and, and teaching him the value of human culture and relationships and, and morality and ethics then, you know, he's no more of a danger to civilization than anyone. You know, we all kind of have that, you know, sociopaths do happen, but they are the minority. Uh, they become billionaires and politicians. <laughs> where we can keep an eye on them. Uh, <laughs> so, so just don't elect, you know, Alan and don't give him a billion dollars and we should be fine. <laughs> so I know you don't like spoilers, but can you tell me if the story, the storyline can, continues into... Or the reveal of what happens with the storyline continues into your next series without yeah, so you to so get a next, sense of it? Yeah, the next few are going to... So what we tend to do with our volumes is that we tend to do one modern day, one historical. 
in one modern day to, to catch up to where we are now in the modern day two or three years later. And then another historical one just, you know, randomly in the past. And we like to do that to sort of, because we just enjoy telling the historical stories and we enjoy allowing the setting to sort of percolate and, and to have these little time jumps where we don't have to explain every little thing in the same way that you don't explain every little thing to someone that you've seen every day of your life, even though the readers haven't seen them every day of their lives. But the, but the next few volumes will be modern day because we're kind of learning about Alan and watching him develop and, and watching him learn about humanity and society and, and ethics while he's having these you know big adventures with Robo and his new friends. So yeah, that, that's sort of the, the macro arc that we're dealing with is now that Alan is now that Robo has introduced Alan to the, to humanity, in effect, how does Alan then react to humanity? What does he learn from them, and how does he uh, become a, great, a bigger part of society? He's still overall a secret. You know, Robo, everybody in the world knows about Robo. He's a worldwide celebrity, but right now, nobody, only the people at Tesla don't really know about Alan. And you know, how long does that secret hold? What happens if and when it gets out? Would it even be a big deal? Because I think most people wouldn't know about his original, his you know, original incarnation. Because there was that's such a weird in-universe secret in itself. So yeah, that's just something we're going to be uh, doing for the next few years. Is just having different modern-day adventures, and Alan's there, hopefully, entertaining people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think over the years you've developed some really great characters. Let's well, say um, Doctor Dinosaur. We had Alan. Another character that I really have been enjoying is Jenkins. Oh yeah, it's kind of he's kind of like the Clint Eastwood. It feels like on some level of the Atomic Robo world. Yeah. And this, is he going a character that you're going to see maybe in real science adventures or maybe get his own storyline at some uh, point? Probably not, just because part of what makes Jenkins work so well is how little we know about him. It's not even what we show, although we do show him just doing these amazing, you know, incredible heroic things. But it's just the awe in which other people, including Robo himself, have in him and describe in the stuff that he's done that I think really sells the legend of Jenkins. That, that's partly what makes him... Uh, not tedious is that, or feel like, you know, uh, quote unquote, a Mary Sue is that all the characters are kind of scared of him, but we also <laughs> show, we show just enough of what he can do to be like, yeah, actually they're, they are correct to be scared of him, but to really sort of just have a whole storyline based around that, I think would, it would be very challenging to find a way to do it in a way that was really, that would actually satisfy readers because keeping it a little mysterious kind of allows every individual reader to, have the sense of their own personal sense of how amazing he must be, right? Anything we show would kind of deflate that in a way. So we're not expecting any miniseries like Origins where he's going to find out his name is like James Howlett or something and <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he's, he came up in some village in World War One or okay. whatever the hell that was, 19th century. I can't, okay. I can't, I can't, I can't remember this, the miniseries. Let's remember, for I think at some level did her some of the prestige of Wolverine after that point. Yeah, I mean, you... That was the whole hook of Wolverine, was that we didn't know his origins. He didn't know his origins. And to reveal that, you know, it, it takes away that mystery, takes away that hook. Even, even if, if, let's say this, it's a great story, uh, you still took something away. No, I, I completely agree with you. Another thing that I think is really fascinating about your Atomic Robo, I think it's the only independent comic book I think of that actually has its own role-playing game. Well, it's about to have one there. I think they just uh, announced that they're going to do a, a version of fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Actually, no, the, there's a few others, you know, because we're all so small time, though, other than Hellboy. Hellboy's kind of big time. It's just easy to miss, right? Because it's like a niche of a niche. Yeah. 
And like yeah. I know that they exist, but I can't name any others. But I know they're out there because I've seen them. So are you going to tell Mike Mandola that he ripped you off? Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> Once again, I do love Hellboy, but so why a role-playing game? Like, What, what made you think, you know what, Tomic Robo really needs a role-playing game? Oh, because Scott and I are huge role-playing game nerds. Back when we first started, you know, we had just, I think we were like halfway through the very first volume. We were already talking about what should go in the role-playing game. And this was before we had any expectation that there would be a second volume. That's how far back it goes. Is, is there any thought of maybe doing an online role-playing version of Atomic Robo so people can play with you guys? No. <laughs> so so here, here's what we discovered while making Atomic Robo role-playing game. Mike Olson, he's the, the main designer. He did an amazing job of ad- adapting uh, Fate Core rules to the Atomic Robo universe. It's a great game. It's a lot of fun. It's very really captures what it feels like to read a book or read an Atomic Robo adventure, even in just the rule book. And then to actually play the game, it feels just like you're reading the comic. It's I just cannot emphasize enough how well Mike pulled that off and how well the rules support stories that, that just spontaneously, you, you know, you and your friends are, are making up the story that feels just like it came from Atomic Robo. He, he did an amazing job. here, And that's why I don't like to play it. Because to <laughs> me, because for, for everyone else, that's a lot of fun, right? Yeah. For me, that's like I'm sitting there and I'm thinking I should be writing this down. Why aren't I getting paid to do this? Is, this is my job. I can't escape. So, yeah, we actually, in a, in a bizarre twist of fate, we actually don't like to play it. And, uh-huh. and that's a terrible <laughs> endorsement, I realize. But it is actually a lot of fun. It is fun. Just not for me or Scott because it's our, it so perfectly simulates the experience of reading Atomic Robo that for us, it's like, working on atomic robo and it's like well that's what we that's already what we do we should be and it gives i don't know it gives us this weird anxiety like oh we're wasting our time oh we, <laughs> we should be writing this down oh we should be drawing this out ah, ah. so it shouldn't say on the box atomic robo role-playing game i don't like to play it yeah <laughs> i do not endorse this at all <laughs> now since you have probably then played it are you any good at it when you have played it oh yeah i mean i mean you know it's, it's just a standard role-playing game it's you know you have you, you achieve the victory that you set out to do. You know, the, you have, you define your success and you have fun. And yeah. Now I even got, to, I even got to play Robo once in a uh, game at a convention. That was a lot of fun. Oh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing, obviously just the thing that you, I've read a lot of yours is your real science adventures, which mm-hmm. as we mentioned a little bit earlier, it's sort of like a semi anthology book. Now, do you, is, when you choose your stories for real science adventures, are you more wanting to build upon characters you already created or is it like a testing ground for characters that you're considering building up more later? I think it's mostly the former and occasionally the latter. I wouldn't even say it's a testing ground, but it is sort of an opportunity to just flesh out the world of Atomic Robo. So, so it does tend to gravitate towards secondary characters that we've seen in previous volumes, having just being around Robo's orbit. And so it's, it's a nice opportunity to tell a story about these characters without Robo in it, just to see them on their own terms. But as well, like with our most recent one, the Nicodemus job, where it's about the this heist back in the 12, uh, 11th century, late 11th century, which is quite a departure for us. It, that wasn't so much a, a testing ground for the characters, although, as it turned out, I really enjoyed writing them and that world and doing the research for it and would love to do more uh, with them. It was just that I had been researching a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of stuff for this other story that I soon realized was far too big 
to contain in a single volume. It essentially, it began 50,000 years ago and then spanned up until, I think, the 17th century. And I was like, okay, this is too much for 110 pages, so let's just, <laughs> zero, let's just zero it down a little bit. Yeah. And so that, that kind of led me toward this big heist uh, in the 11th century. So it was just a lot of fun to play with those characters, and I do hope to do so again. Oh, because I, I think, once again, just like Atomic Robo, the main series, it feels like it's been, I don't know, a century since we saw the last <laughs> Real Science Adventures. I mean, yeah, you want to so, see more of it? Oh, yeah. So the pro- main problem with Real Science Adventures is that, so we have a, a bizarre publishing deal with with IDW. They don't really, well, I'm about to say they don't pay us. They do pay us. They pay us royalties. <laughs> it would be a terrible deal if they didn't pay us. Yes. Uh, they pay us royalties, which is pretty standard, but they don't pay any advances to us. They're not paying any page rates for anything, not the writing, not the art, not the lettering, not the coloring. So any, so you know, Scott and I are paying, have to pay ourselves and we have to pay our colors and we have to pay our letterer. That probably sounds like a terrible deal. But the, <laughs> the, but the thing is that, like I said earlier, that was the plan, right? We were going to self-publish everything. And, and so it wouldn't make sense to budget for some strange third entity that doesn't exist yet to be paying half of our staff. Uh, so when IDW came along, that was kind of part of what made it such a good deal for them was the fact that since we were making these files anyway, we were paying these people anyway, we just kind of deliver the finished product to IDW. They pay for the printing and, and the distribution and you know everything to, to get it into comic shops and all. So for them, it, it's peanuts, right? It's basically, it's all they do is just add to their print order, which is already you know, effect kind of factored into their overall you know, annual budget. So it, it is in effect for them. It's a very good deal. It's free money for us. It's a very good deal because we're making all these sales in the direct market that otherwise we wouldn't. And it costs us no effort. We were already making these files, right? We just email them to this other you know, destination as well. Yeah. So, so both companies are in effect making some free money off, off the same work. It's a good deal, but because they're not paying us up front. We, that then means that when we make uh, real science adventures, that kind of doubles, you know, our expenses, right? Yeah. But real science adventures doesn't sell as much as Atomic Robo because, and that does that makes sense, of course. It's a spinoff book, so Robo is already kind of a niche title. You know, we're this small-time indie group, so we're really only appealing to other Atomic Robo readers. Not necessarily all of them. Not everyone's going to want more Atomic Robo stuff, or there's going to be people who just want Atomic Robo stuff. They don't want the side character stuff, right? So we're doubling our expenses because nobody's, uh, you know, we don't, we shouldn't be paying people less. We should be paying them, you know, what they deserve. But it's not making as much in in sales. So it's hard to do real science adventures and Atomic Robo at the same time because we end up in these kind of money crunches where we're like, oh, we really need a big boost of income pretty soon. And then luckily it is, it's always come through, but it was just stressful. So uh, we have shied away from doing real science adventures of late. Now, obviously, what DC and Marvel would do in that situation, they would force you to buy real science adventures by having it be a crossover story. Yeah, you... so that, that's what we should do. But <laughs> just like, force them. <laughs> but like, like much like Tesla, we're bad business people, so you know we're just more interested in just telling these stories and hoping that people enjoy what we do. Well, like I said, I, I do love Atomic Robot. I think it. I think it's just a great. It helps my mood a lot to read a story like Atomic Robot, which is just fun, which is just a fun, relaxing story. I don't have to worry about continuity that deeply like DC and yeah. Marvel. You don't have to worry about the over amount of drama you're going to be dealing with and Batman moping all the time and yeah. stuff like that. It's just fun. I do have one more question for you. Sure. Um, and then I can let you go. I read somewhere where you stated that your favorite com- comics are the ones where the jokes are on the reader. 
That's true. So what do you mean by that? Kind of, well, like like I was saying earlier, you know, there's no time travel in Atomic Robo until, ha, uh, joke's on you, reader. Yes, there is. Also, <laughs> the joke is on Robo, so I feel like it's, that's not exactly mean-spirited. <laughs> you know, I just like I was saying, I, I just enjoy subverting expectations. I mean, that's the essence of comedy itself, right? Like the, the yeah. punchline. A punchline is funny because you didn't expect it. And so I just, I just like playing around with that structure on a larger scale where the storyline itself isn't a joke on the reader necessarily, but it's it ends in a way or concludes in a way or it leads to a, a destination where, you know, once you've read it, it's inevitable. But on the way there, like it takes you by surprise. Oh, good. At least I, I was really I was wondering what, what the man was like, wait, what do you mean? But no, that makes perfect sense to me. It makes yeah. absolutely perfect sense. And um, so I just want to, and I want to thank you, Mr. Clevenger, for spending um, some good time with me. It was fascinating uh, talking about Comic Row. Like I said, a fantastic character, and hope more people find it. Me too. Overthrow us. And we're back. We are back. Well, that seems like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Atomic Robot. I've actually seen that before. Um, I wasn't. Like when I first read it, his yeah, it was editing the interview. I was like, "What is Atomic Robot?" But now that I looked it up, I'm like, "Oh, I recognize yeah. that comic because I've seen it before." So, oh, that's cool. And I know, yeah, his, I I, and I actually know his web comic, Eight uh, Bit Theater, because it, it parried a lot of Final Fantasy stuff back in the day. And uh, oh, they cool. did it from did it for like ten years, from 01 to like 2010. So, oh back wow, when I, back when I was in web comics, I was aware of, of his comic. I didn't know it was him, but I was aware of the comic. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. That's that's a long time for a web comic, isn't it? It is. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's with a thousand pages at least. You know, it's a that's lot. Nuts. That, that's nuts. That's yeah. nuts. I wonder if he ever released that as a um, as a, like omnibus or something. I don't know. Uh, it's usually people who do uh, web comics rarely ever print them. He might have though. We could probably we could probably Google it and find out. But I mean, I'd rather have somebody out there listening. If they're interested, they can Google it and find it themselves too. Because it's a it's we're sending you on a journey, <laughs> a self discovery journey. Well, I would highly suggest getting out there and at least checking out Atomic Robo. Uh, Brian Clevenger definitely knows what he's doing. You don't get, you know, you don't become nominated for an Eisner Award as a writer if you don't. So exactly. go check it out. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, go do that. And then after you do that, after you definitely check out Brian Clevenger, go to spoilerverse.com and check out, you know, more of our stuff because <laughs> that's what you need to do. Check out all of our other back issues and all of our other people we've talked to, all the other shows we have on our website, and the articles and the previews and the reviews and all the fun stuff. Just go to spoilerverse.com. You will not be disappointed. There you go. But before we go, because that's the end of the show, Johnny just wrapped it up in a, in a nice, tight little bow for you. Good. In oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read. Read.